One of the, one of the reasons, is it working better? Sounds not really working, huh? It's on. Testing. Nope, nothing. I can be loud. <laughs> not so much? Uh, well, I'll be loud today. I'll figure it out for next week. One of the things I love about scripture, and this book in particular, is um, that it's incredibly practical and relevant. Like sometimes we get churches and movements who are like, we have to make the Bible relevant. You're misreading your Bible if, if you're not seeing how relevant it is today. The condition of man really has not changed uh, since the fall. Right? In Christ, certain things do change. You have a new nature, but you also still have that old nature. So really hasn't changed uh, uh, that much. And we're going to see today in Ecclesiastes 4, hopefully, uh, things that we see repeated in history and things you see today. Starting back in chapter 1, Solomon laid out his search. He says there are many twists and turns uh, to life, but he's this, his main point is that life is a vanity of vanities, a breath of breath. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And we are so desperately trying to find something uh, that we can hold on to, something that will last. In particular, Solomon is looking for satisfaction, something beyond the vanity. But he says he can't find it. And to prove his point, in chapter 2, he launches out on this desperate search and all the major things that we all go to to find meaning and purpose in life. He tries education, the wisest guy who ever lived. He tries pleasures and parties. He tries great works. He literally built the temple of God. He tried wealth. He was rich beyond all compare. He tried sex, 300 wives and 700 concubines. And he says at the end of this, nothing. None of it worked. It was a chasing after the wind. But he wraps up chapter 2 by offering us the solution, the initial solution, which is different than what you would expect. You would expect, after he's tried all of these things, that he would want to take those things, like a Buddhist monk or a Catholic nun or monk, and toss them out. Right? The problem is the things. The problem is the things, and we'll be so much better without them. And we call that asceticism. We vilify the things of earth, the things of creation. They must be the problem. And that can appear holy. But Solomon says the solution isn't getting rid of the things. It's receiving them as gifts from God. Right? Don't go to those things and say, make this make my life worthwhile. Through this thing, my life will be better. No. In that way, we make them into God replacements. So chapter 3, Solomon turns to God. First two chapters, his search. Chapter 3, he introduces God to the equation. That God and his sovereignty are so much bigger than we are in our search. We die, God is eternal. We toil and we get wind, God's work produces lasting beauty. We chase the wind and God chases what was driven away. 
We cannot control life, and yet God appoints the various seasons of our life. The solution is that we need God. We need someone greater than ourselves. And chapter 4 kind of starts developing that point even more. As chapter 1 and 2, Solomon's kind of looking at his own life. Chapter 3, he's looking at God. In chapter 4, he starts looking to others. What's going on outside of me? And you should hear an echo in here of the two great commands. Chapter 3, love God. And again, we're going to come back to it next week in chapter 5, love God. And chapter 4, love neighbor. And really, chapter 4 is looking at the absence of loving neighbor and the horror that that brings. And this book has a lot of low points, and chapter 4 uh, might be the lowest. It might be the low of the low. He'll literally talk about, man, it wouldn't be better if I wasn't even born. If you weren't even born, you'd be better off than other people who experience the great evils of this world. He gives us a really bleak picture, but a realistic one. And as I said last week, this is not the uh, always uplifting brand of Christianity. This is the honest and real interaction with a fallen world. And uh, we have to recall what I said also in our first sermon on this, is that the wisdom books of Scripture are meant to be read together. If you want to live wisely, you have to read that entire unit together. In fact, that's true about all of Scripture. Is we have many theological problems, many theological errors, because one party wants to take one truth of Scripture and negate everything else and make this one truth the only truth, and everything else gets thrown out. When you read the wisdom books together, in particular, Proverbs and the wisdom psalms will show us the general principle of reaping and sowing. The righteous generally will prosper. The righteous who work hard will prosper. The lazy person will not prosper. But Job and Ecclesiastes wrestle with the reality that sometimes the righteous starve. Sometimes your work comes back with nothing. Sometimes the righteous are per persecuted. Sometimes the evil rule, and they seem to get away with absolutely everything. And if you read Proverbs in isolation, you're going to be unbalanced. If you read Ecclesiastes in isolation, you're also going to be unbalanced. And at the heart of chapter 4 is that there is great evil done in this world. That is the mark of this age. Jim talked about some of that in our prayer time today. And if we were to truly see the evil for everything that it was, we would despair. And we would despair, I think, even greater than Solomon does here in these first couple verses. If we were truly to reckon with the evil that goes on in this world, we would ask, how has God not just wiped it all out? How has he not judged the earth and brought it all to an end? And so in this chapter, we will see evils in uh, several different areas of life, and particularly in the governmental realm of life, and then also in work. And the first thing we see is the evil of tyranny, the evil of oppression. Look again at those first three verses. Solomon writes, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. 
And I thought the dead, who were already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. It's a sad story of history, if we're reading it rather fairly and accurately, is that those in power, specifically governing power, are often oppressive. You read of the great men and and women throughout history, and they generally fall on one of two sides of the spectrum. They are using their power for evil, or they're pushing back against that evil. Those are the ones who make history. Government, we read in Scripture, is established by God for our good, and yet it is occupied by sinners, and throughout history, kings, presidents, and dictators have used the power of government to oppress their own people and people of other nations. It's the same story on repeat throughout history. And Solomon describes this with the word oppression. Oppression. And that word has certainly become a buzzword today. So we need to be careful that when the Bible uses a word, it often uses it very differently than how society uses it. Today, and for some people, everything is considered oppressive. And that is, if you disagree with me, I need to find a safe place, a coloring book, and some Play-Doh to play with. And then later on, they'll get around to trying to cancel you. That is not what Solomon is talking about here. Oppression here is the actual use of power for evil. The word we used to use for that was tyranny. Christians do not deny that real tyranny and oppression exists. Our country we live in exists because it pushed back against such tyranny. So we will not submit to tyranny, therefore we will start our own country. And if you consider with me for a moment just some of, some of the injustices that man has done to man throughout world history, if you imagine for a moment, if you saw all of it, as God does for every moment, Every cry, every tear, every horrible thing that has happened, it would crush you. It would crush me. I find that as a father now, um, I'm much less tolerant of seeing such things. Watching um, movies that depict real things that have happened in history to young children, I can't tolerate. It crushes me. I can't even consider it that that would happen to my own children. So consider the uncomfortable truth of world history and the weight of it that throughout world history, slavery has existed in many varieties throughout every culture until recently. There's been an ever-present evil in world history. In every society until the West put an end to it and started to demand that the rest of the world do the same. Consider the oppression of the Jewish people at the hand of the Egyptians. Millions oppressed. Young children killed, ripped from their mother's arms, and murdered. Consider the transatlantic slave trade. Around 12 million African slaves stolen by their own countrymen from their homes, sold to Westerners, shipped across to new horrors, and many died. Consider the trans-Saharan slave trade. That is the Arab slave trade that stole from Africa that lasted from the 7th century until the mid-1900s, with million more Africans bought and sold and then shipped across the desert. 
The men were castrated and the women who were sold for their bodies. Many woke people don't want to talk about it, but that has been the history of this world. Consider the modern slavery of human trafficking. Children stolen from their parents, or their parents so desperate they sell their own children. It's just the tip of the iceberg. Consider some of the evils we've seen in the last century. Hitler committed the genocide of six million Jews sent off to gas chambers and then burned, and another five million others. That's not even counting the battlefield deaths. Stalin in Russia imprisoned dissenters, drove his economy and his people to utter despair, and killed approximately, because we can't count that high and that accurately, 20 million people. Pol Pot in in Cambodia, another 2 million in the pursuit of the communist ideal. Mao in China, the communist revolution in China, another 45 million deaths. All said and done, approximately communism in the last 100 years or so has killed 100 million people. Blood dripping from their hands. And it's mind-boggling to me that the intellectual heirs, those who are inheriting communism and rebranding it today, would lecture anyone else about oppression in the past. If we saw a fraction of this, if you saw the torture, the torment, and the death of all of these men, women, and children, you would be crushed as Solomon is here. And as safe as it is for me to talk about that, all that happened in the past, it's very easy to say, hey, yeah, look at how bad those generations were. What about our own time? In the U.S., we have legalized the murder of our own children in the womb. Last count, I think, is over 60 million who are literally burned alive with acid, have their skulls and spines crushed inside the wombs of their mother, or are ripped limb from limb as they scream. And there are some out there who say they're pastors who are pro-choice, absolutely from the pit of hell and wicked. That is evil. Or consider the plight of the Uyghur people in China right now. The Uyghur people are a Muslim group of people of about 11 million who communist China now has about 1 to 2 million of them locked up. And these people, I cannot describe what I read this week to you, were tortured in unspeakable ways, murdered, especially the women. And our International Olympic Committee says, here, have some games. Let's play games next to this. And Disney films movies right outside these camps. And they lecture us about morality. And most countries barely blink because there's money to be made and medals to be won. If you ever want to ask, how did past generations put up with evil, look no further than what we put up with today. It's very easy to say, oh, they were terrible. How could they tolerate that? How can we tolerate what we tolerate today? And yet this is the world that we live in. Evil appears so strong and does untold harm. This is the oppression Solomon is mentioning. The oppression here is not just having power, as the new Marxism describes it. You're oppressive if you have power or if you're in a certain demographic. No, he's going to talk later about good rulers. It's not just the possession of power. It's the use of power for evil. That is oppression. And fighting against such evil is God-honoring. 
One of my favorite theologians, Francis Schaeffer, he put it this way. He says, since tyranny is satanic, where does tyranny come from? It comes from Satan. Not to resist tyranny is to resist God. And to resist tyranny is to honor God. We do not have to choose between following Christ or tyranny. To follow Christ means to push back against whatever Satan is doing, wherever he is doing it. This evil in the governing realm is multiplied because we often forget our good leaders. That's what Solomon gets at here in verses 13 through 16. He describes an analogy, a story here. He says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, of all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after wind. So there's this discussion here about this foolish old king and this wise youth. And there's a few things we we have to take from this. Generally speaking in Scripture, with age comes wisdom. But a young fool, if he never changes his way, becomes an old fool. Age is no guarantee of wisdom. And there is such a thing as a wise young man. And Solomon's point here is it is better to be ruled by a low-ranking young person who happens to be wise versus somebody with noble blood who is old and foolish. That is a better option. And as Solomon lays out the story, the poor youth ascends to the throne, even from prison, and he leads the people well. He leads them into prosperity. He did what was best for them instead of for himself because that is what real leadership is about. Not my power, but serving those I have authority over. And he blesses them. See? He has power, and he's not oppressive. He is good. The vanity of the story is that even though he does well, he is forgotten by his people. He is forgotten by the coming generations. They will not rejoice in him. And again, you should see this on your newspaper pages, on your computer screens. Our great leaders of the past, though they did many stupid things, but were still good leaders, are now hated, they are demeaned, and their statues are literally pulled down. You see, this book is telling you what happens in this world over and over and over again. And it is foolishness and the fickleness of the mob to look at good leaders, yes, acknowledging their flaws and their mistakes, and to forget them. All that sets you up for is the tyranny of the next ruler. And so we forget our good leaders, and evil in this realm of life multiplies. Solomon will revisit this again later in the book. But now he shifts to a different area of life, an area of life where really he spent a lot of time talking, the area of work, the evils of this realm of life. He says, what does man gain from his toil again and again he asked it what does man gain from his work what is he getting out of any of this and what he says here is well often what we get is more evil verses four and five and seven and eight then i saw that all toil that's all work 
and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Then verse 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For who am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhelp, unhappy business. He gives us three evils, three common evils in the realm of work. And the first is that of envy, of greed. The Tenth Commandment forbids envying your neighbor's stuff. And Solomon says, despite that, greed and envy are some of the best motivators out there. You see that your brother, your sister, your family member, your neighbor has this nice new thing, and you're like, I deserve that. I want that. I want what he has. I want what she has. I deserve it. And the problem, again, is not the items themselves, and it's not even the work. It's the heart that lacks basic contentment and so we are driven by our envy of others and as i said what you'll see under here especially chapter four is this lack of love of neighbor lack of love of neighbor drives oppression and it also drives envy through envy we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves as we look at their possessions as more important than them who are they to have that nice thing. I want that more. And the sad thing is, we exchange someone made in the image of God who will live forever for something that will eventually rot and decay and end up in the dump. And yet envy sells. And the worst thing about it, perhaps, is that it robs us of our joy. It destroys families, envying your neighbor's wife, It destroys friendships. It destroys marriages. Because we become, or we start to worship the creation instead of the creator. Those who are consumed with envy become small, bitter, and selfish people. And that is what is promoted every day in the world we live in. You have a right to this. You have every right to have whatever it is you want. And envy spreads like a cancer. Because the sad thing is, once you get it, it doesn't satisfy. If you don't deal with the root of envy, you can say, wow, my neighbor's got this really nice car, and I want that car. And you do whatever it takes, even if it's financially not reasonable, and you get that car, and you know what happens? The envy just moves to a new object. It moves to a new thing. You might have a minute or two, maybe a week, oh, this is a nice new car smell. It's great a lot of debt for a new car smell and you move your envy to something else because the root problem hasn't been dealt with the problem is the heart and it fuels hatred of neighbor and again there's an entire an entire political and cultural movement built off of making envy into a virtue that it is good to be envious it is good that that person who has that thing that I want, I need to get the government to take it from him so that I can have it. And let us be clear. Rich, poor, or in between, you can be envious. 
rich, poor, or in between, you can be filled with greed. The problem isn't the status, it's our hearts. They will never be satisfied in the things of earth because we treat them as gain instead of a gift from God. The second sin in the realm of work is laziness. It's those who refuse to work will destroy themselves, will devour their own flesh. Now be careful here. I'm not talking about those who want to work who can't, those who have real disabilities, but those who are lazy, who could work but refuse. That is what Solomon is rebuking here. In a welfare state, we not only consume our own flesh, but we end up consuming the flesh of our neighbor. Part of being made in the image of God is this call to work. Six days, God made the heavens and the earth. On the seventh day, he rested. For six days, he labored and he worked. You are made in his image. Part of being a human, part of the dignity of being a man and a woman is to work, to have dominion over this earth. And Paul says in the New Testament that those who refuse to work, not those who can't, those who refuse to work should not receive support from the church. You will not work, you will not eat from the hand of the church. That may sound harsh, but if laziness becomes the mark of a generation or a people, it harms everybody, not just you. Why do we work? Well, one, to love God, subdue the earth. The other thing is, is when I work, I produce things for others. I produce something that helps my neighbor. If nobody works, if nobody farms, there's no food. If nobody's a mechanic, then my car is going to stay broken forever. If you are lazy and won't work, you produce nothing for anyone else. You lack no, or you have no love for your neighbor. To put it another way, the marketplace is one area of life where you can best love others. That is part of what it means to work as a Christian. So much so, Paul, in Ephesians 4, he says, if you are a thief, I've got the cure for you. You know what to do? you should be doing if you're a thief? You should work hard and then give your stuff away to others. That'll cure your heart of envy. To work hard, know what honest work does, and then see it benefit others. And the third evil Solomon addresses is that of overworking being the prototypical workaholic. He gives this example of somebody who works and works and works and never stops working, but he has no one to share any of this with. And that person runs smack into the vanity of life. I spend all my hours working. I have no relationships, and all the relationships I do have are broken. I have no sons, no daughters, no marriage, nobody to leave this to. What's the point, Solomon says? The answer is there is no point to it. There's a great vanity. In all of this, focus on evil under the sun. Solomon also gives us some hope. There's all the bad news again. He says there are ways to lessen the vanity. And lessening the vanity largely revolves around loving people instead of stuff. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Oppression treats others as less than you as not being image bearers, as being undesirable. Envy treats others as competition, valuing them less 
than the objects they possess. Working too little produces nothing for others and shows a lack of love for neighbor. Working too much means you care more about your own success than your neighbors or your family members. Also failing to love others as yourself. All the evils of this world, we are told, by Christ in the Gospels, fall under the two great commands. Love God, love neighbors. All of the law can be summarized or fall under those two umbrellas. All of Scripture can fall under those two umbrellas. And so Solomon's solution to lessen the vanity first is to have a balanced work ethic in your life. Look at verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. It says better than driving your life with envy, better than working until you die, is a handful of quietness. A figure of speech, it means to be content. It means to have contentedness with whatever you have. Instead of having two handfuls of toil and working yourself to the utter bone and chasing that wind, it is better to be content with what God has given you. Six days you are to work, and the seventh you are to rest, the Lord says. The idea here is to have a peace in whatever you have in this life. I do not know the jobs of everyone in this room, but I know we have everything from stay-at-home moms to the retired, lawyers, teachers, business owners, and all of those occupations are good. Our work is one way we can love others and display God's image. As you work to produce good educations, good profits, good customer service, to produce the next generation, to represent those who've been wronged, to uphold the legal process, to help people find homes that they will live in and raise their children in. All of that matters. And all of that is a way in which you can love your neighbor. And all of that is a way in which you can operate in the marketplace, not driven by lust or envy, but by a love of God and love of others. So whatever you find yourself toiling at tomorrow morning, the dreaded Monday morning blues, do it with enthusiasm. Knowing that it is good, that God has given it to you to work and toil at, but that it is not ultimate. You will find no lasting gain there, but it is good to work. The second solution is the importance of having real, true community. If the problem here is lack of love for neighbor, the solution is to find others to live life with and to love. Verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no, or no, no one else to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. How do you push back against the vanity of life? How do you push back against the evil of oppression? How do you live wisely in this life? You find faithful and good friends. You find co-laborers who you work with because you are not meant to live alone. You are not the Lone Ranger Christian who will take on this world by himself or herself. That is not how it works. 
God created you in his image. And our eternal God is three persons in an eternal community of perfect love and relationship. And you as image bearers are meant to live in relationship, not just with God, but with others. And so we see here one person all on his own can easily fall to anything. Two people are a little bit better, but a three-strand cord cannot be broken. The old axiom is true. You divide people, you can conquer them. One by one, you will each fall. But together, not so much. So how do you push back against even some of the soft tyranny of our day? One of the best ways you can do that is just keep living your life with others and smile as you do it. The world's going crazy. You can't do anything. You might die. You just keep having fun. Keep hanging out with others and loving them as yourself. I remember in the Christmas of 2020, gatherings again became illegal in Minnesota. You couldn't celebrate Christmas. I was walking with the kids down the street. We were handing out Christmas letters to all of our neighbors. I'm talking about uh, the joy of Christmas, even in a dark time. And uh, as I walked around their neighborhood on Christmas Day, lots of driveways had lots of cars I didn't recognize in them. And I smiled because three together are not easily taken out. Together, we can stand against the strong man. Together, we can encourage one another. Together, we can pick each other up. Is it any wonder that in prison, one of the worst punishments you can get is solitary confinement. We'll throw you in a room by yourself and not let you see anyone. Because alone you can be broken and you can literally go insane. You wonder why forced isolation for almost two years was a problem for people. Because you are not designed to live alone. So that brings us to the final application. Jesus died for sinners. He died for sinners, and this is wonderfully true. Individual sinners he died for, but he died for more than that. He died to found and to establish his church. I have set my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Part of his work was to establish a people who would be here until he comes back, and they would live together, practicing the one another's. Why? Because a three-strand cord is not easily broken. A community of faith is needed for you to grow in the faith. You cannot bear one another's burdens over Skype or whatever it is now, Zoom. You can't do it. You can't encourage one another in the same way unless you can see each other's faces. Sometimes people come to church and they'll be like, hey, how are you doing? I'm doing good. And I can tell in your face, you're not doing good you have a mask on, I'm not going to be able to tell that, probably. But you are meant to live face-to-face with one another, communing with one another, to encourage one another, to exhort and correct and even sometimes rebuke one another. That is why Christ died, to establish his church by his blood, by his word, and sustained by his spirit. In Christ Bible Church, for the last about year, that's what we've been trying to do. One of the things that have amazed me, as you get to know me, you realize Levi is not the social butterfly. He bounces around the room. But one of the things that has amazed me 
is you all and your community with one another. Talking to one another, getting to know one another. I mean, we started with most of us not knowing each other at all. And that is what God's church is supposed to look like. He did not found a church so that it could grow by having light shows, fog machines, and comedians standing behind the pulpit. He founded the church to push back against the gates of hell and to encourage one another. To proclaim his truth, to live it together, and to push back against the darkness. Christ Bible Church attempts, by the grace of God, to be a three-strand cord. That there are going to be times in all of our lives where we struggle, where we fall into temptation and sin, where we fall into doubt. And you can isolate yourself and you will die, or you can come together. How do we push back against the evil of this world? You go to church. You sing praises to God. You hear the church or the truth preached, and you encourage one another. You encourage you in your marriages, in your work, in your devotion, in your truth-telling, and in your love for each other. And we do this because Christ died, died for our sins, rose again in victory, and because he is Lord over the whole church and over this whole world. That pushes back against the evils under the sun. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have sent your son and that he came on a mission to die for sinners like us. And that after dying and rising again, he did not just shuttle us all off to heaven, but he said, be my church, be my body on this earth. And Lord, we must confess that we often fall way short of that. But may our hearts and minds be renewed this morning, knowing that we are not strong enough on our own, and that one of the greatest graces you have given us is fellow Christians doing life together. So Lord, we ask that in an age that is marked by evil, that is marked by uncertainty, that we would encourage one another, that we would bear one another's burdens, and that we would love one another as you have loved us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.